1: This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And today we bring you part two of the story of Earl the Pearl Monroe. Last week, we shared the story of his upbringing and his life up to the moment where he finished his college career and was getting ready to join the NBA. So let us pick up where we left off. Monroe had just finished an amazing college career at Winston-Salem State University. He led the nation by scoring 41.5 points per game in his final year. He was named an All-American. And going into the draft, he did not have an agent to represent him. That was not totally uncommon. The era of the sports agent was just dawning as many players began to realize that they needed help in contract negotiations and handling endorsement opportunities. They needed legal help to get through it. Unfortunately, Monroe was rather naive and never bothered to get an agent. For some unknown reason, he assumed that his college coach, Clarence Big House Gaines, would negotiate his NBA contract. Not sure why he thought that. Even Monroe admits that he is not sure why he thought that. So he was going to walk into whatever team drafted him and just sign the first offer he was given. At the 1967 NBA draft, the first overall pick was made by the Detroit Pistons, and they selected Jimmy Walker, the biological father of Jalen Rose, by the way. But with the second pick, the Baltimore Bullets selected Earl Monroe. He signed for two years at $20,000 per year, and that was a pittance by NBA standards. The Bullets took advantage of Monroe, and Monroe figured out later once all of the rookie contracts became public knowledge. Some of the other rookies were getting double and even triple what Monroe was getting. With that, Monroe did the only thing he could, play for that second contract. He set out to win Rookie of the Year and he did, averaging 24 points per game and 4 assists per game. He had all the makings of a superstar. He also landed in a good situation basketball-wise. The coach of the Bullets at the time was Gene Hsu, who was a former player and got along with everyone on the team. He was a player's coach, and he liked a fast pace, and he trusted his players to make good decisions on the court. Coach Hsu loved Monroe's no-look passes and his showmanship, but he cautioned Monroe to make sure that his plays also served the purposes of the team. In other words, nothing wrong with a no-look pass as long as that pass led to a basket. He did not want anything fancy just for the sake of being fancy, and Monroe was good with that. In only the second game of his career, the Bullets played against the mighty Boston Celtics. Monroe was finally on the same court with one of his idols, the great Bill Russell. The first time that he drove it into the lane, Bill Russell swatted that ball away. On the next possession, Monroe took it into the middle again, and again Russell blocked it. And Russell looked at Monroe and said, quote, welcome to the big time kid, unquote. On the next possession, he drove again to the basket and saw Russell coming. Monroe went up for the layup but suddenly pulled the ball down and floated to the other side of the basket for a reverse layup for two points. As he ran down the court, he looked at Russell and said, quote, can't get them all big fella, unquote. And Bill Russell just laughed with that famous cackle of his. At the end of the first season, Earl Monroe was the 1968 Rookie of the Year and he proved that he could play and play well at the NBA level. One of the funny things that happened during that rookie year was that Monroe was regularly called for palming the ball on his spin move. NBA referees had never seen that move before. It was done so quickly that they were sure Monroe was palming the ball. It seemed that there was no other way he could pull off that move. Obviously Monroe was frustrated and so was his coach. So Gene Shue sent film into the NBA's head of officials and had them look at the film frame by frame. They determined that Monroe was not committing a violation. His spin move was perfectly legal. All of the league's referees were notified and Monroe was no longer called for palming the ball on his spin move. It took game film played slowly to prove it. That is how quick Monroe's spin move was. In his second season, he raised his scoring average to 26 points per game and 5 assists. And he was named to his very first All-Star game as a starter alongside Oscar Robertson as the starting guards for the Eastern Conference. He had made it as an NBA superstar. Here are just some of the other players who were on the East squad with Monroe that year. Bill Russell, John Havlicek, Jerry Lucas, Dave Bing, Willis Reed, and Billy Cunningham. All Hall of Famers, and Monroe was now part of that group. And the Bullets were getting better. In Monroe's second season, they added Wes Unseld, and they won 57 games and lost in the first round of the playoffs. In his third year, which was 1970, they lost in the first round again. It seemed like the Bullets just could not get past the New York Knicks, their nemesis. The Knicks were a completely loaded team with a bunch of Hall of Famers like Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Dave DeBuscher, and Bill Bradley. It seemed that they always got the better of the Bullets. But in his fourth year, the Bullets broke through and made it to the NBA Finals led by Monroe and Unseld. Unfortunately, they lost to the Milwaukee Bucks who were only in their third year of existence. But they had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson, so no shame in losing to those guys. But things got really weird in his fifth season with the Bullets. As I mentioned before, Monroe signed an unusually small rookie contract. His second contract was not much better. He never got the salary that he wanted, but now he had an agent, Larry Fleischer. Fleischer had originally started as the legal counsel for the players union, but was now representing individual players in their contract negotiations. Monroe was working on an extension with the Bullets, but the Bullets did not seem that interested in signing Monroe to a long-term contract. Or at least the Bullets did not want to sign Monroe for the amount that he was asking for. Bullets then made a trade with Philadelphia to bring in some young talent. So between Monroe and his lawyer Larry Fleischer, they decided to force the Bullets hands. The new season had already started and they were three games in. That was when Monroe decided to disappear. He did not show up for any more games. He took his phone off the hook and basically got off the grid. He even left Baltimore and went home to Philadelphia to avoid contact with the Bullets. The Bullets began talking bad about Monroe in the newspapers. It was a very nervous time for Monroe. In the end, Fleischer was able to work out a trade to the New York Knicks and the Knicks did not have to give up any of their key players. The Knicks gave the Bullets Mike Reardon, Dave Stallworth and $450,000 in cash. But this was a tough one for Monroe. He hated the Knicks. They were the sworn enemy of the Bullets. They battled each other in playoffs many times. How could Monroe join the enemy? But then he realized that the Knicks were the enemies of the Bullets, not him personally. Once he looked at the situation that way, it was much easier to make the move, and he knew just how good the team was, and he wanted to play for a legitimate championship contender. He also liked the idea of playing in the largest arena in the NBA and living a New York City lifestyle, so off he went in the middle of the 1971-72 season to join a bunch of great players. Now this is a good place to take a break, and we'll be right back with Monroe's story as he joins his rival, the New York Knicks.
2: items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynever.com, ROW number 1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items. Plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes.
1: Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of Earl Monroe. He had just been traded to the New York Knicks and was ready to join a serious title contender. When he arrived for his first practice, all of the key players came up to him and gave him a hug and warmly welcomed him to the team. But the player that he was really nervous about was Walt Frazier. They guarded each other regularly. He did not want Frazier to feel threatened or anything. But Walt Frazier could not have been any better about having Monroe on the team. Even Dick Barnett, the Knicks' other starting guard, was cool with the whole situation because it was Barnett who was most likely to be replaced in the starting lineup by Monroe. But Monroe asked Coach Red Holzman to come off the bench so as not to disrupt the rhythm of the team. Holzman was fine with that and Monroe would become like a sixth man and the first player off the bench for the Knicks to come in for Barnett. It was definitely a learning experience for Monroe. For his entire life, he was the star player and the one that everyone was trying to get the ball to so that he could take the shot. He was the primary scorer for every team he had ever played on up to that point. But with the Knicks, there was no primary scorer, and that was by design. Coach Holzman wanted a balanced scoring attack with four or five players all averaging in the high teens. They shared the ball, set picks, hit the open man, and trusted each other. It was really a beautiful brand of basketball. Now this was new for Monroe, but he knew it would work. This Knicks team had just won the championship two years earlier. This was a proven veteran team. So Monroe adjusted his game to the Knicks and fit in seamlessly. In that first year with the Knicks, they went to the finals but lost to the Lakers who were having one of the greatest seasons in league history with a 69 and 13 record, including 33 victories in a row, which is still a North American professional team sports record. So Monroe had lost in the NBA Finals for two years in a row, one with the Bullets and now one with the Knicks. But Monroe knew that he had more to give. In the summer of 1972, Monroe had surgery on his feet to remove some bone spurs that had been bothering him for that entire first year with the Knicks. After healing up, he was ready to come back back to the Knicks even better. And when he came back the following season, he averaged 15 points per game to go along with Walt Frazier at 21 points per game, DeBuscher with 16, Bradley also with 16, Willis Reed with 10, and Jerry Lucas with 10. That is about as balanced of a team as there has ever been. No team in the NBA could risk concentrating on any one score because the Knicks had too many weapons in their arsenal. They really were a nightmare for other teams to defend. In addition to being around a great group of athletes, they were also one of the smartest group of athletes this side of the Harvard basketball team. Bill Bradley was a Rhodes Scholar from Princeton. That means that Bill Bradley was not just extremely intelligent for a basketball player, he was extremely intelligent for a human being. Jerry Lucas was a Phi Beta Kappa at Ohio State. Now that is not some regular fraternity. Phi Beta Kappa is a serious academic honor. In fact, Lucas turned down his athletic scholarship at Ohio State and instead accepted an academic scholarship, allowing the team to offer his athletic scholarship to somebody else. Dick Barnett would go on to earn his PhD after basketball and was a professor at St. John's University. Phil Jackson would go on to a Hall of Fame coaching career and is also an accomplished author. These Knicks could not only beat any team on the basketball court, they could have played as a team in a Trivial Pursuit tournament or some version of Team Jeopardy and still destroyed all competition. These guys were a group of academic all-stars. Those players have authored nearly 20 books between them. Going into the 1972-73 season, the Knicks were firing on all cylinders. They had a record of 57 and 25 and went back to the NBA Finals to face the Lakers again. But in that spring of 1973, they had to play the Baltimore Bullets in the first round and they defeated them four games to one. It was a relatively easy victory. But in the second round, they had to play the Celtics. Now, Bill Russell had been long retired, but the Celtics had rebuilt around John Howard Pavlicek and Dave Cowens, and they took the series to seven games before the Knicks came out on top in a convincing victory in that seventh game of 94-78. Now that set up an NBA Finals where they would take on the Lakers. And the Lakers did win game one at home by a score of 115-112. But it was over after that. The Knicks then won four games in a row, including the fifth and final game in LA to send Jerry West to his eighth loss in the NBA Finals. Earl Monroe finally had his championship. It was a complete team effort from beginning to end. That final series in 1973 featured 13 members of the Hall of Fame. That is a lot of talent for just two teams. The Knicks had Bill Bradley, Dave DeBuscher, Walt Frazier, Jerry Lucas, Willis Reed, and of course Earl Monroe, all of whom are members of the NBA 75 list as some of the greatest players of all time. Their coach, Red Holzman, and backup forward Phil Jackson are also both in the Hall of Fame as coaches. On the Lakers side, they had Will Chamberlain, Gail Goodrich, and Jerry West as Hall of Fame players. Their coach, Bill Sharman, is in the Hall of Fame as both a player and a coach. And then there was a backup guard by the name of Pat Riley, who was also in the Hall of Fame as a coach. It almost boggles the mind when thinking about how good these players and coaches were. After that championship, Earl Monroe would play for seven more seasons for the Knicks and go to two more All-Star games. By the time that 1980 rolled around, he knew he was done. His legs were gone, and he could no longer keep up with the new group of guards coming into the NBA. We're talking about guys like Dennis Johnson, Tiny Archibald, and the new rookie phenom, Magic Johnson. The NBA was experiencing a changing of the guard, and Monroe was part of the old guard. He retired with a career average of just under 19 points per game in 13 seasons of professional basketball. In his retirement, he has done some endorsements, appearances, small business ventures, community service, and some TV work as a basketball analyst. His number 10 jersey is retired by the Baltimore Bullets, who are now known as the Washington Wizards. His number 15 jersey is retired by the New York Knicks. His son, Rodney Monroe, played 38 games for the Atlanta Hawks in his one and only season in the NBA in 1992, and he averaged just three points per game. Thankfully, Earl Monroe is still with us. He is 77 years old and comfortably retired. Black Jesus was one of the greatest to ever lace them up, both in the NBA and on the playground. That is it for today. That is the story of Earl the Pearl Monroe. Join us next time when we share the story of when John Wooden lost his lucky penny, and somehow it impacted the entire season. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza joining us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon.
0: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman